0: A voice of many voices, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and on the web at WERU.org, Grassroots Community Radio. This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today we're going to time travel back to 2004 for a sneak preview of an upcoming event. Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman will be in Bangor on May 14th, speaking at a fundraiser for WERU and promoting her new book, Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movements changing America. More information about that event can be found on our website, weru.org. To give you a taste of the kind of informative and often humorous presentation you can expect, today we're going to hear what she had to say back in 2004 when she spoke before an enthusiastic crowd in Belfast. Amy Goodman was introduced by WERU's Matt Murphy. Uh,
1: a quick sidebar, we had a call yesterday morning uh, on, the, on the Saturday morning coffeehouse. Brendan Kern was hosting and someone called to let us know that Amy Goodman had been arrested. Um, but couldn't give any details uh, and and was asked for what. Well, there's a lot of things they would arrest her for, so we think it was a little bit of sabotage, attempted sabotage, Um, but we didn't go for the bait. I'd like to thank Amy Goodman, and also Dennis Moynihan is here as well with Amy. Dennis was the fellow who organized the protest at (laughs) MBNA a few years ago, which was instrumental in the battle for Pacifica. And we'd like to thank them for including WERU in their national book tour for the the book, The Exceptions to the Rulers, which Amy wrote with her brother David Goodman, a fine journalist in his own right. Democracy Now! brings speakers, issues, voices, interviews, information that is not really well represented in the mainstream and is even ignored or distorted in the mainstream. So you get to hear an interview with former Ambassador... Joe Wilson on Friday, you get to hear Arndadi Roy, you get to hear His Holiness the Dalai Lama all sorts of folks like them and then also people that no one knows but have stories to tell Democracy Now! can be heard on WERU, our sister station WMPG in Maine um, on Free Speech TV and hundreds of community radio stations throughout the country and at democracynow.org, where there's archives of programs. If you missed, if, some, if you got out of work late or something happened, you couldn't listen, you can go to the website. When I think about uh, Amy Goodman, I was thinking in the last couple of days, I've got to introduce Amy a few times and drive her to the airport a couple of times. But most recently, I just started thinking about her in terms of um, Rob Shetterly's wonderful series, Americans Who Tell the Truth, his portrait series. <laughs> And, and I just happened to pick up the other day that card that has uh, Chief Joseph on it. Chief Joseph says, I have asked some of the great white chiefs where they get their authority to say to the Indian that he shall stay in one place while he sees white men going where they please. They cannot tell me, Chief Joseph. I think Amy Goodman and, and the, the handful of courageous, independent, and community-based journalists who do this kind of work ask that question? They go to the white chiefs of today and say, Why? And they demand answers. And they get answers to share with us so that we can take action. So I, I regard Amy Goodman, and I hope you do too, as one of the Americans who tell the truth. Please welcome once again Amy Goodman.
2: Thank you very much. Boy, I cannot believe you came out this early on a Sunday morning. But, you know, Mainers, you have always distinguished yourselves, and it's wonderful to come back home. Um, You know, I lived in Maine for a number of years in the early 80s in Bar Harbor. So last night uh, we began our Maine trip, having flown in from Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, in College of the Atlantic. I was a visiting student there, and it was surely wonderful to come home and to work with Sherman's books that I always went into to find books, and now here we are working with them. Um, we're on a 70 city tour, the exception to the rulers book and media tour, celebrating media that is the exception to the rulers. <laughs> And so last night, even at College of the Atlantic, I mean, I think that the reason the number of people that were there were there was because of W.E.R.U. And here, of course, and then heading down to Portland, we'll be celebrating W.M.P.G., the community radio station there. But it's our way of communicating with each other. It's why it's so important. And. A shout-out to to Mr. Paperback, uh, the bookstore that we're working with as well, because these independent bookstores are as much a part of the independent media landscape, and they are certainly a dying breed that can be revived. We're seeing them around the country, uh, just like librarians are the freedom fighters of our time. (laughs) Really so are booksellers because they're the ones with librarians who are targeted by the USA Patriot Act, by Section 215A of the USA Patriot Act that says that an FBI agent can come into a bookstore or a library and demand to know what someone has read. Uh, we were just in Boulder and Denver, Colorado. And there is uh, one of the largest independent bookstores, Tattered Cover, in Denver. And we had Joyce Meskus on the program. Some of you may have uh, heard her. And she led um, a... A case against the government about 10 years ago. They had to spend about $100,000 uh, tattered cover, and then lots of independent booksellers supported her in this because the government had come demanding to know what a person had read, the book they had taken out. And she decided to just say no. And she won, ultimately. It went to the Colorado Supreme Court, and she won. Um, These people are protecting all of our rights, all of our privacy rights. Librarians don't want to have to put up signs, as some have, that said, um, you know, you may be watched. They don't want to discourage people from coming to the libraries. But some are dealing with this issue, well, we should tell them if it's true, others saying this is the one safe space. We don't want to make people feel afraid. Just as media, Pacifica Radio, is a sanctuary of dissent, so are libraries. I My library at home, my dad was on the library board for 25 years, it was down the street from us. It was an extension of our living room. I'm surprised I didn't grow up whispering. Because uh, librarians would be surprised to hear me say that, considering they never thought um, I was quiet enough in the library, but, you know, I figured it's my house, I don't have to always be quiet. But um, it's so important we support independent media. Um, As Matt was saying, we're making this DVD available if you get two books for free. It's $30 on our website if you don't want to get the two books. it's a wonderful project of a local independent media uh, center in upstate New York, Albany. It's called the Hudson Mohawk Indy Media Center. And I had gone to speak there about a year ago, right when the bombs were falling on Iraq, And I didn't even know they had filmed it. But then they spent the next four months laying down thousands of video images and stills from the corporate media. They say it much better than I do themselves. Uh, the corporate media, make their own case. And it's these kinds of projects that people are doing all over the world. And um, on the DVD, in addition to this film, there are two others. One, the coverage of the February 15th massive protests, that global protests that rock the world for peace. and uh, And then a women's peace protest in Albany, New York. That was a protest that went on for a month of women one after another not together would go to a women's center it was a storefront in albany 24 hours at a time and they would be in the storefront window and they would do whatever they did write in their journal or so or talk to people read um write. and people would come in and talk to them and it went on for a month and that's a really nice documentary part of the dvd and Why encourage you to get two books? Well, it supports independent booksellers, um, which is so important. It supports WERU, which is extremely important. And it sends a very powerful message to the publishing industry in this country. I mean, I come from New York, which is the heart of publishing. There is this proliferation of conservative imprints where they are publishing book after book um, of the right wing ideologues. And as we go across this country, we see there is a hunger for something very different. We're on the 70 cities tour. Um, Started in New York, Cooper Union on April 13th. Tim Robbins joined us, uh, who is a dissenter in his own world in Hollywood. Um, Juan Gonzalez was there, co-host on Democracy Now!, Jeremy Scahill, great reporter that we work with, Um, my brother David Goodman, and then we went out to, on the April 15th, um, the 55th anniversary of Pacifica, we went to KPFA, where Pacifica was born, and with Michael Franti, we did a big event there, the great hip-hop artist. But the numbers of people who are turning out, um, like here. I mean, in Los Angeles, 2,000 people came out. Uh, In Minneapolis, we worked with the local independent bookstore that's owned by Louise Erdrich, the great Native American writer. They said that the exception to the rulers is hotter than Harry Potter for them in terms of what they're selling, which is truly amazing. 1,500 people came out. And it's just hit number 17 on the New York Times bestseller list, which is pretty astounding. Um, Also, the Book Sense bestseller list was the bestseller list of independent bookstores, Boston Globe, number four, um, and Boulder, it's number two, but why it's particularly interesting for the New York Times bestseller list. It's 17. If it hits 15, it goes into the New York Times because they do the top 15, though they show you the extended list beyond. If it hits 15, maybe the only time the New York Times will be uh, forced to write about the exception to the rulers. See, they have a problem because we do fiercely critique the New York Times in the book. So I don't know if they will be writing about it in any other way, but in this case, they will not have any choice um, to give you a sense of what we write about in the book. One of the chapters is called Lies of Our Times. So, um, And another one is called Hiroshima Cover-Up and talking about the context, um, the history of the New York Times working with the Pentagon. In that case, it was a reporter covering the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, who was also on the payroll of the Pentagon, William Lawrence. A very interesting story. So I'd like the New York Times readers to get a chance to read The Exception to the Rulers, and they will if we just pick it up two notches. (laughs) And that will depend on you. Consider it a neighborly act. (laughs) Um, And if you're wondering what to do with that second book, this is only if you can afford it, by the way. If you can't just... uh, go to the library call, make sure that they do order the book or you could give a second book to your library to your high school, to college to a community center to your father for Father's Day if you are a father buy one as a gift for yourself in case your kids forget and, <laughs> um, but the media all the media should be the exception to the rulers, that's our job There is a reason why our profession is the only one protected by the US Constitution. Because we, as journalists, are supposed to be the check and balance on government. We are supposed to be holding those in power accountable. I come from Pacifica Radio, founded 55 years ago last month. Founded by a man named Lou Hill, who was a conscientious objector in World War II when he came out of the detention camps, he said, there's got to be a media outlet not run by corporations that profit from war, but run by journalists and artists. That's how Pacifica was born, not run by corporations as George Gerbner, a journalism professor at the University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School, says, not run by corporations that have nothing to tell and everything to sell that are raising our children today. Yes, we need a media that is honest, that is not willing to trade truth for access. In the exception to the rulers, we call that access the access of evil. (laughs) It was interesting. I mean, part of what's interesting about writing the book is a lot... It really crosses over into different audiences. Um, People who read books don't necessarily, you know, watch a particular television show or radio program and a Newsweek reporter was interviewing me and I said, you know, I call it the access of evil. He said, the what? This was Newsweek. I call it the access of evil. Anyway, he actually, I think that was the title of the piece that he wrote. So, and there were a lot of good people within the system who feel the same way, who are journalists working for these corporations, uh, who are trying to get independent voices out there, who find it extremely difficult. And every time a book like this makes it, um, it empowers them inside the system. As the editors say, hmm, what is it about this? But you know, the publishers consider it when a book like this succeeds, oh, there's a market. Out there. I mean, I call it a citizenry of people who are hungry for other voices, starving for other points of view. I'm not going to call it the mainstream media anymore because it isn't. You saw the study that two weeks around Powell making that address to the United Nations as push for war of the four major nightly newscasts, almost 400 interviews done around war, only three <coughs> interviews with anti war representatives. That's the four major nightly newscasts. This was at a time when most people in this country were opposed to the invasion. I mean, that's astounding in itself, considering the media almost iced out all dissent. The people still... Could you imagine if the media was fair and fairly reflected? I think it would be more like Spain. Maria Carion one of our great producers at Democracy Now! who moved back to Spain, where she comes from, should you don't know what it's like when there's a protest. You cannot move in the street because... The entire country just moves into the street, all the, you know, the guys who run the shops in town, everyone, the police, everyone is opposed to the war. I mean, Asnar is out. Let's not forget that. He went completely across the current of the entire population of Spain. And I really do think that uh, if the media were different, it's how most people would feel in this country. But the fact is, most did anyway. Most did anyway. Um, in that time leading up to war, felt that there should be more time for inspections and diplomacy. Last night I was uh, having dinner with one of the state senators, uh, a group of people um, in Bar Harbor, and he's a state senator, and they tried and almost succeeded in getting a resolution passed before the war, uh, right, uh, opposing it, a resolution passed, and they lost by one vote. If one Democrat hadn't switched over, or one Republican, uh, they could have won. Uh, but a lot of pressure, he said, from the press, saying, what are you doing? What does this have to do with you? Hmm. What does this have to do with you? As if war is not a local issue. As if soldiers from Maine haven't died. As if this devastated economy in this country, every state dealing with deficit budgets, isn't affected by billions of dollars. I'm not going to say going to Iraq, because it's not. It's simply going right into corporate welfare for these companies like Halliburton and Bechtel uh, that then grease the pockets of these politicians with campaign contributions. It's a perfectly worked out system. Um, And it's one that has got to be challenged. It's why campaign financing fits right into war, uh, fits right into uh, who is in Washington today. And it's very important that this all be exposed, and that's the role of the media. So KPFA was the first Pacifica Station, nineteen forty-nine, then KPFK in Los Angeles, BAI, where I come from in New York, nineteen sixty, WPFW nineteen seventy-seven went on the air in Washington, and Houston in nineteen seventy, KPFT. When Houston station first went on the air, it's the only radio station in the country whose transmitter was blown up, actually blown up twice, by the Ku Klux Klan. And when the exalted Cyclops, or was it the Grand Dragon, I often confuse their titles, <laughs> went on trial, he said it was his proudest act. And I think it's because he understood how dangerous Pacifica radio is. Dangerous because it allows people to speak for themselves. And when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, that breaks down the caricatures and the stereotypes that can lead to the bigotry that fuel these groups. You think right now about what's going on in Iraq, Abu Ghraib prison, the horror of the photos of what's taking place there. And now Seymour Hirsch, who you often hear on Democracy Now, he's now being uh, interviewed in a number of other places. He was interviewed by the Columbia Journalism Review a while ago, and he said he considers democracy now sort of the place he feels most comfortable speaking. It was also one of the only places for a long time that you could hear Seymour Hersh there and international press. No one else would interview him. He's been doing this groundbreaking stuff for a very long time. Now the rest of the media is picking up his stories. It is so important. This is the man who exposed me lie in Vietnam and won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. His latest piece that's coming out tomorrow, it's probably out on the web now, saying it was on direct orders from Donald Rumsfeld that uh, the prisoners be tortured. And the, uh, the Pentagon is denying this, uh, but we'll have Sai Hershan to talk about this. Um, These pictures are so horrific at Abu Ghraib. And you hear the press talking about how the Arab world is enraged. It's not just the Arab world. They don't have some special gene that makes them particularly sensitive. It's the whole world. Everyone and people here across the political political spectrum are horrified. And it shows the power of the pictures, which is all we've been saying all this time for the last year. Show the pictures. Because I would contend if we saw the pictures a year ago of the babies dead on the ground, of women with their legs blown off stepping on a cluster bomb, we would have never gotten to this point. Because this country would have said, no, that war is not a civilized response to conflict in the 21st century.
0: You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. This is Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman speaking in Belfast, Maine, back in 2004. She'll be in Bangor on Saturday evening, May 14th, speaking at a fundraiser for WERU and promoting her new book, which is called 20, uh, Democracy Now, 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America. Details and tickets are available at weru.org. We'll tell you more at the end of the show. Turning back the hands of time again to 2004 and Amy Goodman speaking in Belfast.
2: When we're broadcasting from the different stations all over the country as we travel on this exception to the rulers tour, we try to focus on local voices and, you know, So many local issues are global. So we had on in Boulder when we were broadcasting from Free Speech TV, the chief of neurosurgery at Landstuhl Air Base. uh, Some of you may have heard that interview. Uh, This doctor is from Boulder, and he had just come home, and he said he's suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. He's not in Iraq. He's not in the war. But seeing these thousands of young soldiers who are suffering from the most horrific Uh, wounds because both war technology has gotten so advanced and also medical technology has gotten so advanced. So these young soldiers are being hit so hard um, and they would normally die but they are able to keep them alive though with horrible um, uh, handicaps and wounds. And he said, all the doctors are suffering terribly now because they're seeing this. And it's not just young men and women. It's even wrong to say soldiers. I mean, when we say soldiers, if they're in a different category, these are young men and women who, I think of a not-so-funny cartoon, but a cartoon of a young man wearing a helmet, throwing a grenade. And he says, what the bleep am I doing here? I just wanted a college education. You know, how many people are going into the military because they're told they'll pay off their college loans or they can go into, they could get an education or they'll be able to get a job, they'll have specialized training. These people are all of us in this country and they're not just young, they're older too. Um, Those of you who are listening to Democracy Now! about a month ago know Juan's piece that he did in the New York Daily News and then we brought the people to you speaking for themselves. The older National Guardsmen, Army New York National Guard, who are cops and firefighters, heads of the prisons in New York, they went to Iraq, and they went to a place called Samawa and they stayed there, and they got sick there, and sicker and sicker, and no one knew why. They went back to Fort Dix in New Jersey, and they were asking for the Pentagon to help them, and they were getting no help or tests, and they were just extremely ill. And Juan got the New York Daily News to pay for tests for depleted uranium. And about half of them tested positive. The others had elevated levels of U-236 in their blood. And the Pentagon was enraged that they had gone outside to get tested. And one of the men, who's very sick at Walter Reed, um, they brought him into a room with all these high-level medical and military people. They said, how dare you? Uh, get tests outside, and he turns to one the doctor said, but I asked you in November to test me. I didn't want to go outside. I asked you to help me. Uh, you're who I work for. This is the country I protected. I thought you would protect me. And the doctor said, it's true, and we didn't test you. Um, and so these men came into our studio. Uh, one worked as a guard at the prison right next door to Democracy Now. We're in Chinatown right next to the courts. Another is the one of the top people at Rikers Island in George. Uh, Another um, was the shutterbug of the group in Iraq and he would take photos of everyone so he'd be able to bring them home and he was climbing over. It was an old depot, train depot, and there were Iraqi tanks that had been blown up outside and he was always climbing over them to get a better view to take pictures of where they were. No one told him, don't climb over these tanks that the U.S. military exploded them with depleted uranium-coated weapons. And so he's really sick now. When the Dutch troops came in to relieve the U.S. troops, they brought in Geiger counters, and they said, no way, we're not staying here. And they pitched tents in the desert. And then the Japanese troops came in, and they also found that the um, the rates of the radioactivity, the radiation, was way too high. Um, but the U.S. soldiers knew nothing about it. Now, Hillary Clinton is calling for every soldier, Senator from New York, every soldier to be tested who comes back from Iraq for depleted uranium. In Europe, it's a much bigger issue. Here, it almost doesn't get talked about at all. We know why the Pentagon doesn't want to talk about it. But the question is what about? the press in this country. We're not supposed to be a part of the government. We're supposed to be holding those in power accountable. It is very frightening what's happening in Iraq right now, a true quagmire. It's a disaster, and it continues to unfold. As we fly from city to city, I'm afraid to land, because we find out the latest casualty numbers. What, over 770? I'm sure now it's over 780 soldiers killed. And what about the Iraqis? Over 11,000. And these are the people that we went in to save and to liberate. Let's remember. I know Powell said we don't count the enemy dead. But even by the Bush administration's own standards, these people are not the enemy. Right? We had gone in on a goodwill mission to liberate them. And now more than 11,000 are dead. And the numbers just keep on rising. And it's very important that we know these numbers. And who is in charge there? Well, just two weeks ago, we were in Boston for two days. And one of our events was uh, doing the Cambridge Forum. And we did it with Noam Chomsky. And Noam was talking about John Negroponte. Uh, You know, he's going to be the next US ambassador to Iraq. his history um 1981 to 1985 he was the ambassador to honduras uh this was the time when honduras was being used as a staging ground for the illegal contra war thousands of nicaraguan civilians killed in the u.s illegally with oliver north and george bush ronald reagan uh Supplying the Contras with support and John Negroponte was at the heart of it with Elliot Abrams who's back in government, too It's interesting. Have you ever noticed all these people who are convicted of perjury or back in the government? And what's so horrifying about it is that the media is acting as a conveyor belt for the lies the lies that take lives But um, John Negroponte 81 to 85 Honduras US ambassador Honduras starts off with 3.9 million dollars in U.S. military aid in 81 and then the CIA trains this death squad battalion in Honduras called Battalion 316 and many Hondurans are disappeared, Uh, they're killed um, at the hands of this battalion and a high-level State Department official said in 1982 when he was preparing the State Department Human Rights Report on Honduras that John Negroponte himself, as ambassador, told him to purge the report of any references to disappearances or murders, making Honduras look more like Norway than Argentina. And during this four-year period, Honduras went from getting $3.9 million in military aid to almost $80 million in military aid, $77 million. And this is the man who will take over as the US ambassador to Iraq in charge of the largest embassy, what will be the largest embassy in the world, 3,000 personnel, 500 of them CIA. Yes, John Negroponte knows well counterinsurgency, And this is why it is so important we know history, the media almost giving us no history. It's absolutely critical, we know. Because one way the media works is to reflect the establishment consensus. Like you might be saying, now, come on, give them a break. Maybe they were bad a year ago. But right now, we're seeing a lot more. We're getting a lot more of debate, a lot more of criticism. It's not that the media has improved at all. The way the media works is it reflects the establishment consensus of the power elite in Washington, Democrats and Republicans. A year ago, the Democrats joined the Republicans in supporting this invasion. Remember, John Kerry, John Edwards supported the invasion. And so we heard no dissent in the media, almost all iced out. That was a year ago. Now we're in an election year, and John Kerry, And the Democrats are trying to distinguish themselves from the Republicans. And so the spectrum has opened up a little bit as they, in a very narrow way, debate each other. And we are hearing that debate now reflected in the media. But I would contend that mainstream America is way ahead of these folks. And the spectrum is much wider. Um, Just as we saw 400 interviews, three with anti-war representatives, That is an extreme media, not the mainstream media. That is an extreme media that does not reflect mainstream America, which was in a totally different place. We are talking about a media that not just ices out the fringe minority or the silent majority, but the silenced majority. And we're silenced by the corporate media. (laughs) And so... You have this media that reflects what the Democrats and the Republicans are bickering about. And many times, they don't bicker at all. They agree. Which brings us to John Kerry, um, who, who, when he was first running for president, uh, he saw a man leaping ahead of the pack who was anti-war, Howard Dean. And he watched as he gained in popularity. Remember, I mean, you remember, the, if you're watching television listening to the radio, the media had said John Kerry's dead. I mean, John Kerry is out of the running. His campaign has imploded. And now everyone was just talking about Howard Dean. It's hard to remember this. It was, wasn't that long ago. And Howard Dean is giving these powerful speeches against the war. But John Kerry is nothing if not a superb politician and a very tough politician. And he saw that people were responding to this message. Oh my gosh, he had voted for the invasion and people are for the guy that's against it. And so he started giving speeches against the war that were more powerful than Howard Dean's. In fact, he started giving Howard Dean's speeches much better than Howard Dean ever could. And Dean is suddenly watching and he can't even debate the guy because he's using his words. <laughs> and he leaps ahead. I mean it's not a terrible thing for a politician to reflect the will of the people to get a sense of what people want and to change their views and that's what John Kerry was doing and he wasn't he was no longer running against Howard Dean he was running with him and then ahead of him and he is now the presumptive nominee and Dean's out of the picture so now John Kerry is running against George Bush or is it with George Bush it's hard to tell right now we on Democracy Now! took from the Pacifica archives John Kerry's incredibly powerful speech that he gave April 21st, 22nd, 19, 22nd, 1971 before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Have you heard this speech? It's amazing. Go to our website, democracynow.org, if you haven't, because it was one of the most powerful, powerful indictments against war. Here was this young, highly decorated military officer back from Vietnam, had saved many of his own brothers, the other military, been extremely brave, yes, killed many Vietnamese, but came back and said, this is wrong. And he gave this speech that struck fear in the heart of President Nixon. Nixon and Nixon spoke with Kissinger about John Kerry in the White House and the Oval Office, said, this guy is a number one enemy because he was so articulate, so highly decorated, so credible, giving these powerful speeches against the war he had fought in, had been a part of, and talking about atrocities Vietnam, U.S. soldiers had committed in, in, in Vietnam. And that's who John Kerry was then. Now, I think when we broadcast that speech, Kerry would consider it a show against him. And yet they were his words. You have John Kerry with this record on Vietnam. George Bush, it's hard to believe, attacks it, right? And you would think it would be extremely easy to fight back. I mean, here was... Kerry in Vietnam where was Bush I mean he had joined the National Guard to get out of the military and he didn't even show up for that and then not only in Texas but then in Alabama Kerry's going around with this band of brothers the soldiers that he had been so brave and saving Bush can't find one person to speak up for him and you'd think this is just a no-brainer this is so easy for Kerry to deal with But instead, he is defensively taking, allowing Bush to define the argument and say, it's not that I threw my medals, it was my ribbons. We call them ribbons, but they were really medals and they were. You're going, what? And he is running away from his own record. He has such an important lesson to teach America about what it means to have gone to war, to have been a warrior, and then to believe that it's wrong. If he stood up for that now, especially in this climate today, the whole country, I believe, would stand with him. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. But instead, you look at Vietnam, where he's running from in Vietnam and also Iraq. You have what's happening at Abu Ghraib. You have the number of U.S. casualties. And you have the New York Times uh, with a front-page headline a week or two ago saying, Kerry looking for a theme. (laughs) I mean, Tim Russert interviewed John Kerry on Meet the Press and was asking about Bush's support of Sharon and the assassination of the Hamas leader. And Kerry said he supported Bush in this. Um, I mean... Forget what you think about the other guys. What does that mean for leaders at home and for soldiers abroad when this kind of extrajudicial killing is supported? It means no one is safe. And it always comes home to haunt us. I mean, after that happened, Japan criticized, Germany criticized, Britain criticized, France criticized, all attacked Sharon for doing this but there was Bush standing with him, and there was Kerry standing with Bush, the opposition candidate, and then, you know, Sharon coming out on the no right of return for the Palestinians and the settlements, and Bush is supporting it, and even Ressert was surprised. He said, do you agree with all of this, with Bush? And Kerry said, yes, and then he said, Ressert said, completely,
0: (laughs) and he said, yes. This is Amy Goodman speaking in Belfast, Maine, in 2004. You're listening to Maine Currents. Amy Goodman will be speaking at a fundraiser for WERU coming up on May 14th. Details and tickets are available at WERU.org, and we'll have more information at the end of the program. You're listening to Maine Currents. So the whole philosophy of ABB, anything
2: but Bush, is very dangerous at this early stage. And I say at this early stage it's dangerous because these guys are politicians. They will go with the flow. They will move with whatever the wind of the electorate is, whatever people are feeling. And you can let them know how you feel. John Kerry has certainly proven very often he can change his position on any issue. (laughs) And that's up to you. That's up to the citizenry to decide what these men will stand for. Hopefully someday they will be women. But what these men will stand for. And when people just say ABB, anything but Bush, you're not holding these representatives, if they are, accountable in any way. (laughs) And, of course, it's up to us in the media to also hold them accountable and to ask the tough questions. I am sometimes invited in the corporate media, um, but often they don't know what to do with me um, because they have a very narrowly defined spectrum. Okay, you're the reporter for Bush or you're the reporter for Kerry? And then they set up the reporter against Bush or against Kerry. But then with me, they say, um, okay, we're going to talk about the military record, okay, and you'll be there for Kerry. I say, well, Kerry has a very problematic... Okay, then you're there for Bush? Well, no, I think... I mean, we're supposed to be independent journalists, but... um, uh, And then they don't know what to do, because they say, well, we'll have someone slamming Kerry, you know, one of the Republican reporters, but then you'll be slamming him, too. Well, we'll have someone slamming Bush, but then you'll be slamming him, too. Um... Well, that's why we need a media that is independent. It is so important that we make demands of the corporate media as well as shore up independent media like WERU. It really does make a difference. Um, One of these chapters, in Exception to the Rulers, is Lies of Our Times, where we take on Judith Miller, the chief national security correspondent in The New York Times, month after month coming out with these front page stories on weapons of mass destruction. The government could not have done it alone with their lies because we all have a natural skepticism. Well, maybe they're not telling the truth, but you don't have that same skepticism of the media because we are supposed to filter and analyze and deconstruct and investigate what the government says, except when we don't. Um, You know, Jason Blair, that young reporter at the New York Times who told all those lies and has just written a book, Burning Down My Master's House. He was fired from the New York Times, and the New York Times did a five-page, full-page spread on him and his lies and his um, misrepresentation and not showing up at stories he said he was at. Well... I really care a lot less about the Jason Blair affair than I do about the New York Times coverage of the Bush Blair affair. And that goes to Judith Miller's reporting. I'm waiting for a five-page, full-page spread, Um, or I should say a five-page box of corrections. Uh, We're calling for uh, the New York Times to have a department of corrections. And we go through each of Judith Miller's scoops and what we're waiting for, the oops, the corrections. Uh, But it's so serious. I hear Andrew Card was just in town in Augusta for the Republican Party convention. Andrew Card, you know, the chief of staff of George Bush, uh, the former GM lobbyist. What we see in Washington is the ascendancy of the oligarchy. You have... Um, George Bush, a failed oil man. You have Dick Cheney, the former head of the largest oil services corporation in the world, Halliburton. You have Condoleezza Rice, who is the national security advisor, sat on the board of Chevron, largest oil company headquartered in California for 10 years, and then had a Chevron oil tanker named after her, the Condoleezza Rice. They only took the name off the tanker after she became national security advisor, and it had become such an embarrassment. Um, And then Don Evans had a commerce. He was the head of an oil and gas company. And Spencer Abraham, head of the Department of Energy. He was a one-term senator who, during that term, got more campaign contributions from the automotive industry than any senator sitting. Uh, And that's just the beginning. So you have Andrew Card, former GM lobbyist, now chief of staff, who in... The August-September 2002, in this lead-up to war, was asked why they weren't pushing harder for justifying the invasion that was about to happen. And he said, from a marketing point of view, you don't roll out a new product in August. From a marketing point of view, you don't roll out a new product in August. Uh, And then they started the rollout. Bush and Blair hold a news conference at Camp David, and they say that Saddam Hussein has gotten nuclear weapons. Uh, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has just come out with a report, they said. The problem was, and all the reporters dutifully reported this, the problem was there was no such report. Uh, they call up the IAEA, no, we don't have a report. Mohammed El baradei no, head of IAEA, no, we don't have a report. But they could just say it. Because they are so confident. Their arrogance comes out of their experience that they won't be challenged, and they weren't. So they start with a nuclear thing. And then the next day, Cheney, I think it's September 8th, 2002, and we document this, you know, day by day in the book. September 8th, 2002, Dick Cheney, former head of the largest oil services corporation in the world, goes on Meet the Press... Meet the Press, owned by NBC. NBC was one of the largest nuclear weapons manufacturers in the world, made most of the weapons for most of the parts in the Persian Gulf War. So he goes on NBC's Meet the Press, and Russert uh, starts to talk to him. He says, you know, we know that Saddam Hussein's got nuclear weapons, the aluminum tube story, and that proves that he's getting nuclear weapons. Um, and he says, but you don't have to believe me. Believe he's holding up the New York Times. And there you have this front page story of the front page story of Judith Miller talking about the aluminum tubes and the imminent mushroom cloud. Now, that's scary for Americans. That's scary. So so you don't have to believe me. It's right here in New York Times. Of course, she's crediting unnamed sources in the White House and the Bush administration. There's no check and balance. Yes, those lies matter because those lies take lives. But there are ways we can take them on. Um, one of the chapters in The Exception to the Rulers is called Things Get Messy with Sally Jesse. Now, how many of you remember my story of the Sally Jesse Raphael show? Raise your hand. Okay, I will tell it because most of you don't know it. And those of you who do, correct me when I say something wrong. <laughs> um, now, it happened during the Persian Gulf War. And I was on WBAI, I had just done the news, we were in fundraising drive, something you all painfully know too well. And all the volunteers were in taking calls and um, I was railing against the bombing of the cradle of civilization back to the cradle. And a young woman ran in, volunteer from tally room, and she said, Sally Jesse Raphael show is on the line. I said, yeah, right. So I just kept going and she kept coming in, no really, they're on the phone, they wanna talk to you. Now, volunteers are the heart of community radio. And I hope you all volunteer at one time or other at WERU because they need you as well as your financial support. Um, So volunteers are the heart of what we do. I just thought this volunteer was hallucinating. So (laughs) it happens, you know. Um, (laughs) So anyway, she kept pestering me. So just to appease her, I picked up the telephone. And sure enough, there was a producer from the Sally Jesse Raphael show on the line, and she said she was listening in her limousine. I guess her chauffeur had turned on the program. And and she said, would you like to join us in two days uh, for the program? I said, wow, sure. You know, I mean, the mass media matters. They're reaching millions of people around the country, and this is a women's talk show. Millions of women every day watching these kinds of shows. Uh, and so I said, sure, and you know, I thought about what to wear, you know. <laughs> Whether to dress as a man, dressed as a woman, dressing as a man, dressing as a woman. But anyway. <laughs> I I figured it out and I went down there. And they kept us in two separate rooms. The pro-war women and the anti-war women. There were three and three. We are looking over. What do they look like? Just, um, actually, all five, what were they wearing? Uh, actually, all five of the other women, two with me opposed and the three, four were military, interestingly enough. Um, and the producer came in and she said, we're separating you because I want you to meet on the stage. I really want it to be fireworks. I want you to duke it out. I want you not to be afraid to express your opinion. Um, And I thought that that was actually a very cool idea. (laughs) Here you have people, just like I was saying before, inside the system or outside the system, it doesn't matter where you work. What matters is that you're able to accomplish what you want to, that you feel you're making a difference, and as long as you are, stay there and work at it. And here was a person who knew that this show affects millions of people and said, I want this show to get the ratings, she said, that the other shows get. And I know that we can prove it. And I said, yeah, you're onto something. Let's do it. So we went out on the stage and the lights went up and the music went on and Sally came out and she handed the microphone to someone in the audience, a woman who said, I'm really concerned about Saddam Hussein having chemical and biological weapons, to which The woman next to me, Dr. Yolanda Hewitt Vaughan, who is an army captain, trained as a doctor, who was refusing to go to the Gulf because she said she was trained to save lives, not take them, said, "Um, I share your concern, but I think it's very important to point out that we have chemical and biological weapons right here in the United States. But before she could get out the word states, Sally whirled around, and she started barreling down the aisle, shouting, you be quiet, you shut up, this is my show, or you get out. Now, I hadn't really seen this show before. <laughs> she, she was coming down the aisle at such a velocity. That, and I was thinking of this producer saying, I really want you to duke it out. And you know the whole Jerry Springer thing where they really do. And she was coming up on the stage. I thought she was going to strike Dr. Yolanda Hewitt Vaughn. I mean, here was Dr. Hewitt Vaughn. She was this petite woman. She had on this long black dress, big glasses, hair tied back, very soft-spoken, hands clasped in her lap. She looked almost Amish. And I don't know, I just felt protective. And Sally was coming down so fast. As she's coming up on stage, I said, Whoa, Sally, back off. And and they had invited us to invite friends to fill the audience. And I had brought people from WBAI. And they started chanting, free speech, free speech. (laughs) You can dress them up, but you can't take them anywhere. (laughs) So Sally started to break down right in front of us. And she stopped the taping of the program and her producers came out, and they started to rock her back and forth, saying, that's okay, Sally, that's okay. (laughs) It was the one moment of unity for us six women on the stage. (laughs) We're just staring, we're in shock. I mean, could you, she seemed, it seemed that this was the first time she had ever heard an anti-war view expressed. If it could shake this one person, could you imagine if occasionally the media let out a voice like this for the whole country to hear, what kind of effect it would have? Um, Now, remember, they were taping, and in two days it was supposed to run, but she stopped the taping very early on. Anyway, somehow, the producers convinced her to carry on with the taping of the program. (coughs) Oh, there was one caveat. Um, When we continued, we would have to raise our hands if we had anything to say. Now, we agreed, though I had never seen anything like this before except maybe on Sesame Street. So so, So the show went on. And it was good. It was a really good program where we're really sharing our different points of view. And Sally showed videotape of the protests in Washington. And she asked me, who are these people? Now, I didn't know everyone's name, but... (laughs) I did recognize some of you there. Um, I said there are people who are engaging in what they believe is their patriotic duty. You know, they don't get the privilege of being invited into a corporate network studio to one-on-one calmly, in a civilized way, express why they're opposed to war. Invited in, like well with anything like the frequency of someone like henry kissinger right who is invited in quite often to these corporate network studios you know i think of this these pundits who are constantly commenting on all the networks i don't even think they move from network to network i think there's a small circle of them these pundits who know so little about so much and they sit in one room and they just change the logo throughout the day nbc cbs abc so they're not invited in like Henry Kissinger is on a very regular basis to explain why he supports every invasion. No. <laughs> they can only hope that if they band together on a global warming day, a CBS executive will open a window and that chant of no war will waft in and perhaps hit an open microphone. But, but I congratulated Sally. Because she went beyond just showing the pictures. We're lucky if even the images of the protests are shown on the networks. Even that is a big deal. Though, by the way, most people don't identify with that. Because who identifies with people screaming in the streets? Um, But we're lucky if they show those pictures. Sally went beyond. And she was willing to have a panel discussion about war. So I said thank you. And we went on, and I said things like, as the granddaughter of an Orthodox rabbi, I'm horrified to see little Israeli children wearing gas masks, but I'm more horrified to see little Palestinian children without gas masks. And that's the kind of discussion we had. Um, my grandfather died years ago, but my grandmother, well, just a
0: couple weeks ago, we celebrated her 107th birthday. <laughs> And that is where that recording cuts out. That was Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman speaking in Belfast, Maine, in 2004. You can join us at the UU Church in Bangor on Saturday, May 17th at 7 p.m. for a chance to hear her speaking at a fundraising event for WERU. It's part of her national tour for her new book, Democracy Now! 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America. Tickets are available at weru.org, and if it doesn't sell out in advance, there will be tickets available at the door as well. At the door, we'll only be able to accept cash and checks. Again, that's Saturday, May 14th at 7 p.m. at the UU Church on Park Street in Bangor. and. Uh, WERU.ORG has more information about that. That's Maine Currents for this week. Join us here every Wednesday at 4 o'clock for independent local news, views, and culture. Next week, we'll be returning to a call-in format with the next in our series of election season call-in shows. We'll be doing that about twice a month up until the elections, and we hope to hear from you. You can send story ideas and suggestions for this or any of our locally produced news and public affairs programs to news at W eru.org stay tuned for more amy goodman coming up next this one just recorded this morning democracy now is up next after the weather and a few promos and then we'll have jazz straight ahead larry's in the building getting that ready for you i'm amy brown thanks for listening to community radio W E R U F fm 89.9 blue hill 99.9 bangor and streaming online everywhere at weru.org Support for WERU comes from our listeners.